Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'm joined by Scott Loria Morganson, author of Spaces Between Us, Queer Settler Colonialism and Indigenous Decolonization, just released from the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with the First Peoples Publishing Initiative. Now, this is the second book in a row I've picked that is making some really profound criticisms of mainstream society, but uses precise language found mostly in the halls of academia. Oftentimes, this language is developed to address very particular ideas and concerns and is useful to those who wield it and have developed it, but can also be hard to access if you're not immediately familiar. Dr. Morganson does a great job of articulating himself, both in the interview that follows and in the written work he's produced, and succeeds, I believe, in making complicated ideas clear and direct. But so as there's less confusion for listeners, I should start out by defining a central term that Morganson uses, and that's queer, or more broadly, queer theory. I think many folks correlate the term directly with LGBT identities, and while that's not inaccurate, activist scholars like Morganson push it a bit further. In fact, I'd like to turn to Morganson's own words uh, from another interview he gave where he explains that his book, quote, contributes to queer studies, so my term mediates two meanings in that field. First, queer as a critical take on power, as in queer theory or queer politics. And two, queer as a descriptor of persons identified with sexual gender marginality and resistance, often referencing but not limited to LGBT people. He goes on to explain, quote, my book centers the first meaning, but because the book is an ethnography and a history, persons and identities are my social texts. So I often invoke queer in its second meaning, but only to subject it to the first critical analysis of the power relations that produce subjects and social life. The central problem Morganson raises with queer theory and practice in this work is the reluctance to engage with the ongoing process of settler colonialism, which conditions modern sexuality, and with struggles for indigenous decolonization. I hope you enjoy the interview. Dr. Morganson, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So we'll, we'll be discussing your new book, Spaces Between Us, Queer Settler Colonialism and Indigenous Decolonization. It's just released from the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with the First Peoples Publishing Initiative. This is really a superb work. Uh, it asks many difficult questions, um, but it points us all non-native and native, queer, straight, and in more accountable directions, I think. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this work. Sure, thanks. Um, well, I grew up in the city of Santa Cruz in the coast of California on Ohlone Coastal Territory, and uh, 
I grew up there during the 70s, which was a time that um, people might recall in the San Francisco Bay Area was being uh, transformed by a lot of uh, interesting counterculture. It didn't really affect my family so much, but I remember uh, seeing it around me. Um, and then uh, we did move to, uh, to the L.A. area, and I studied there and also um, back in Northern California um, into uh, my teens. And, um, and, and it was in the context of leaving home and uh, going to a university. I was uh, part of the first generation of my family to go to university that uh, I encountered, um, well, uh, a cultural space that was very different from where I'd grown up. It was much more racially mixed, uh, mixed by class. Uh, and I, and I was able to, uh, to start talking about aspects of my life that I had been previously quite silent about. So that was the context in which I uh, took on a gay identity and joined GLBT communities and really identified with those communities as, um, as pretty much the center of my life. Um, that was also the time in my life when I first really became aware of myself as a white person, having grown up in normatively white and sometimes uh, entirely white enclaves, um, first living relatively poor in the woods and then in a solidly middle-class life in the city, um, it took my movement out of those spaces into the more urban and mixed context of the university to really confront where I was located within this, this society that I was growing up within. And, uh, and so I, I narrate some of that because it, it was in the context of coming out into GLBT politics that I first really began to understand myself in a political sense as a marginalized person, but it also didn't take very long, partly because of the politics uh, that surrounded me in uh, the major cities of California, um, but also because of my own interest, and I think I, I carried this interest for quite a long time in my life, in anti-oppression, it didn't take very long for me to realize that I was actually quite a privileged person. I come from a mixed-class background, and so you know, struggling with money sometimes makes a white person think that they're not particularly powerful. But, um, but particularly once I effectively class advanced by getting into university and, and then being able to, in that context, think about whiteness, think about the history of U.S. imperialism, and begin to realize that the U.S. was a settler colonial state and that I, I lived as descendant of settlers at the, at the expense of Native nations, um, that, uh, that I began to have a more intersectional, what we might call in a feminist context, an intersectional understanding of my relationship to oppression and privilege. Um, uh, that, that, that understanding has been complicated and nuanced over the years, <laughs> I'll confess, decades, since this stuff first uh, started occurring to me um, in my youthful organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, but but I, I name that because that 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 remains uh, that remains a strong thread not only in my life and my work but also I think people would find if they were reading the book very much in my scholarship. Hmm. Now uh, I imagine that there are many listeners who aren't familiar with the literature on queer theory per se, um, and I want to I want to start by getting you to explain and situate some of the key terms in your text. Uh, but but most broadly, I want to uh, jump off of a point you just made about coming to understand yourself and, and other folks around you as, as being part of a settler uh, nation, um, being settlers themselves. I think many non-Native people in North America have no sense of themselves as settlers. 
um, even as they participate or have investments in settler colonialism very clearly. Um, you know, how does that change the terrain of political and academic discussions to uh, to really reckon with that identity as a settler? And, and you know, how do you situate that? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful and a huge question. Maybe I'll, I'll try it. I'll go at it in two ways. Mm-hmm. And the first one would continue a little bit of uh, how this is growing up in my own life. And then I might, uh, if you could remind me, also make a comment on how this impacts uh, scholarship more sure. broadly. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, because uh, for me, the, the, the question was not proposed to me in either a very direct academic or political sense when I was uh, uh, sort of finding myself um, in my late teens and my early 20s um, in, in both uh, activist and scholarly arenas that we call queer. Um, I'm using queer in that context, in this context, as sort of an, uh, what it's often, how it's often used on the street, which is kind of an umbrella term, a very short one-syllable umbrella term for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, queer, questioning, and many other possible terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that context of, uh, of social uh, movement, um, uh, again, uh, the, you know, I mean, how do I, how do I want to put this? Uh, I really, the only privilege I really recognized in myself uh, at, at front and center was, was whiteness. And if it got conflated with the U.S., I would generally have thought about it 20 years ago as just connected with the U.S. role as a global empire, um, you know, during the era of the first Gulf War or in the wake of the Cold War um, or Vietnam. Um, I lived in, you know, when, when you grow up in, in urban California and you're not native, and I would say most likely if you are a white person, um, you may, uh, that person, I'll just speak for myself, uh, may very well experience um, the whole world being interested in where one lives. And that was, that was how it was for me. The whole world kept coming to my backyard. <laughs> you live in, in, in Los Angeles or San Francisco long enough, I felt like I lived in a, in a global world. And, and, uh, and and it, it feels like, and it could be the effect of Hollywood or, or something, or or just the, the investments of people who benefit from a settler society not looking at that. But it really, it only really occurred to us, even those of us who were, who were thought of ourselves as, as quasi radical activists, to think of us as living on stolen land, or to think of the colonial. Uh, uh, genesis of this country, the United States, to actually um, uh, still be alive and well. It wasn't colonial in the past, it's colonial right now. That thought didn't really launch itself into my consciousness. And um, this was simultaneous, I'll, I'll explain why I think that was, because of course once my life got resituated and I was working side by side and speaking face to face with Native activists, all that changed. But what I'm effectively telling you is that I was in an effectively non-Native space. Mm-hmm. And people didn't acknowledge or talk about that. I think, as you, as I explain in my book at quite a great detail, using historical citations and other material, it becomes rather apparent that a normative way for a non-Native person to come up in a settler society is to believe that Native people have all disappeared. That not only is colonialism in the past, but indigeneity is in the past as well. Uh, this, this, uh, and, and this, this plugs into colonial discourses on, and often on, on cultural authenticity because the presumption is that, quote unquote, and I don't believe in this category, authentic indigenous people are the peoples that in this, in this colonial 
mentality only existed in the past. And so if a non-Native person ever would actually meet a Native person, they would never experience that Native person as, quote-unquote, really a Native person, right? Because the assumption is that modernity is, is that, um, uh, is that modernity is progressive, that it overtakes those things that it thinks of as primitive, and that there is no possible uh, in co-evil or same-time relationship for uh, non-Native and Native people to exist within in, in such a society. And so I really think that I was one of, I just not, it doesn't surprise me in retrospect to realize this, and I hope it's not a surprise to the listeners that, that I, here I was, a, 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 I would say, a highly educated, rather intelligent, politically active a young adult ready to take responsibility for leading social movements, and I knew basically squat about my own socialization as a settler, completely inculcated with settler colonial mentality. So the first time that this stuff really started to occur to me was when I, I continued this kind of intersectional uh, uh, anti-oppressive activism in my own community and realized that uh, that the LGBT communities in, in the urban areas of California at that time, it's not restricted to those places, but I'll only speak to there because that's where I was, were struggling with their own uh, racial, ethnic, and national diversity. They were, and still are, uh, a, a fully diversified by by uh, members and 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 and, and members of communities uh, representing uh, the the wide variety of racial, ethnic. Um, identities and communities in the United States and, and for diasporic people, uh, communities around the world. Um, and of course, for white people, if they had any consciousness about that, then they also recognized their historical relationship to Europe, but they wouldn't probably have called it being settlers. Um, and so we realized that, that we lived in very diverse communities. And for many of us, I would say specifically, most specifically for white people, not having grown up in as racially or nationally diverse uh, home communities, we really had to struggle with our ability to um, connect, and uh, and I was on I was I was attempting to activate my own sense of white anti-racism, and I joined as an ally with other uh, with radical queers of color um, in alliances of queers of color and, and white anti-racist queers to address the stuff in our in our space. Um, because I was simultaneously uh, studying and critiquing colonial discourse in my scholarship, where I had, was taking a degree in anthropology because I was interested in critiquing, I was learning how to critique the history of anthropology as a colonial force and as a, as a purveyor of colonial discourse. I began looking around me in my community and I saw that it wasn't just that, that this community was... Um, you know, basically having infighting or that people weren't understanding each other's contemporary experiences, is that there were also stories being told about the community's cultural differences, and some of which I found to be, and other people found to be quite problematic. Um, I mean, certainly it could go anywhere from uh, the, the common uh, fetishization, uh, an orientalist fetishization of the sexualities of men and women um, who have who have, anyway, who have this kind of, this, uh, so, so Asian American and, and South Asian and, uh, and, uh, and Arab and Middle Eastern queers uh, fought back against this, uh, this projection upon them of sexual mystery and availability and, and how that 
played into the racism that would then structure relationships between a white queer people and Asian queer people um, in the United States, as, as an example. Um, I also noticed that our communities were struggling with, well, rather that our communities had been uh, constituted by an enormous amount of um, talking about the history of sexuality and gender in Native American societies. Um, anyone who knows uh, the history of, of these communities and the kinds of texts that have been important to them might remember that in the 80s and 90s, some of the most popular books being bought and sold in U.S. GLBT spaces were books by white anthropologists about as I've said, sexual and gender diversity in Native American nations' histories, um, but books that were organized, organized around this colonial concept called Burdash. I spend a lot of time in my book um, doing what I think scholars already know to do, which is debunking this category as a colonial object that was projected onto Native people that wasn't generated out of Native traditional knowledge but it was an attempt on the part of white and non-Native scholars to, to look at Native history and effectively in these books that I've referred to, to take inspiration from it. Um, I would say that, that regardless of racial ethnic background, in these racially, nationally diverse GLBT communities, all kinds of people thought that they knew all kinds of things about the history of gender and sexual diversity among Native Americans and could talk about it at the drop of a hat. Um, the stories uh, were almost uniformly about praising the evidence of the acceptance of of sexual diversity and gender diversity of people whose lives might today be read as gay or lesbian or as transgendered um, in Native traditional cultures and spiritual and religious practices on various nations. Um, and in a moment when we talk about two-spirit activism, I can get more specific about what I'm referring to here. But uh, just to say that, that those stories were so common that I think it, it occurred to me, it, it was sort of, it took us a while, you know, it, didn't, it took a while to sink in. But I started thinking about it like, wow, isn't this interesting, right? Here's this community, and often a, a very self-evidently or, 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 um, uh, or intentionally uh, anti-oppressive community uh, of people who seem to come from the whole planet. You know, uh, every imaginable form of diversity seems to be present in this community. And they all seem to know so much about Native Americans. And yet, I could tell you, counting on one hand, the number of times during those first 15 years that I organized in those spaces, when I found spaces that included Native-identified members. Mm. There was all of this... It was effectively, uh, to end the thread, a naturalization of the of of this myth of the disappearance of Native people, and it at the same time that there was a kind of an authorization by non-Natives to know the truth of Native people and to own that truth as part of their own sense of self and to promote telling stories about that truth as a way of promoting their own non-Native lives, politics, futures, and liberations. Um, when that thought occurred to me, and this was, uh, you know, probably getting close, little about 20, 15 to 20 years ago, that pretty much sparked the path that has led to this book. Mm. Um, I could end by just quickly giving you the second part of your answer, sure. which is uh, how that then informs how I understand today how uh, 
I do say non-natives quite a lot in my text. I always specify that that's, in, that's uh, hopefully, obviously, a group of people that will be both um, diverse and uh, differently situated by race mm-hmm. and nationality. Um, so, as a white person, I don't. When I say non-native, I don't. I don't generally mean to speak for all people who are positioned as non-native on this land. And I often limit what I'm saying to non-natives who are white. But, but I'll. I'll continue here by saying that I think that for most non-natives, most especially for white people, there is um, an assumption that um, that native history, I'm sorry, that native traditional culture um, is the history of the non-natives who now live here on settled land. Part of the mythos of, of, uh, of a white supremacist settler state, it becomes hegemonic, so then it becomes possible for people who not only people who are positioned as white to participate in it, even though I would certainly, and it obviously needs to be traced to a specifically white supremacist uh, origin. Um, the assumption that to be born on this land, to grow up on this land, to have one sense of community on this land, um, it doesn't just make one uh, someone who, who right, probably lives somewhere out, somewhere far away from where one's uh, distant ancestors once lived, but also leads to the possibility of finding something uh, buried in the ground or or learning that a place name is from a language other than the one that was brought to their ancestors from another continent, you know, or just something about the land's history as native space actually becomes incorporated into that person's sense of self um, without being you know, uh, uh, too simplistic because I think we need to. There's a great bibliography we need to cite when we talk about what's a settler. How does a settler think? What is this kind of person? But um, but certainly, I would say one aspect of that would be a a person who gains their sense of self by occupying uh, another people's space and their past. And then incorporating that into themselves somehow, some in some way that it becomes affective, mm. uh, affective and emotionally. There's an emotional attachment to um, to being the inheritor, to being the one. Another way to put it would be one who replaces. Mm. Um, so I, I use that kind of language, uh, citing people like Philip Gloria and Renee Berglund and. Um, all these wonderful scholars like Patrick Wolf, uh, who are writing within the new field of settler colonial studies, to try to understand better this this subject formation we could call a settler. And I try not, as much as it's possible, to describe that as an identity in the first instance, uh, because I think while it's cle- I think it can be, and, and in some political senses, I actually think it, it can it should be under some certain conditions used as an identity. Um, although in others, I would say it should not. Uh, I, I went down at the root. I really think about this not so much as an identity, but as a kind of a process of subject formation, a way that one could become a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think all identities are actually precisely that, actually. But uh, but I emphasize that because I think it gets us slightly outside of the what I'm, might be a less productive conversation of walking around and. Uh, you know, we're not doing that in this conversation, but if you read the literature more broadly, you'd see that some scholars who are writing about this are sort of walking around with their finger pointed out in front of them, and they're trying to point and say, there's the settler, and then they point over here and say, that's not a settler. And this process, I think, is um, 
going to hit. That might be a little bit too simplistic mm-hmm. sometimes, um, because uh, because rather than being a settler, I think what I mean in some constitutional way, I think what we might want to be asking is how does one learn how to act like a settler? And you start to realize that like Hopilani Aikau's amazing work on on um, on Mormonism in Hawaii and the Hawaiian diaspora that's just been published. Um, there's some really lovely texts coming out now in Native Studies talking about how how indigenous people can become socialized under certain conditions to think and act like and as settlers on other indigenous people's lands and and it's precisely in refusing that refusing to allow that to be or to be the end of the story that um, I think we see hope for this thing we're calling being a settler to actually be unthought and fundamentally transformed. In the case of white settlers and 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 pretty probably uh, all non-natives who end up uh, occupying that status, I don't think it's that's something that can simply be unthought. You'd have to fundamentally change the entire economic and political governance structure of the societies in which they live. Like we can't just unthink this. But but if you did ask me, I could. Uh, who is? How do we? You know, how do we theorize settlers, or how do we find out who or where they are? I would like to, to talk about this uh, this thing I've called a process of subject formation. Yeah, that seems like a very important um, conversation change to have to happen. I really appreciate the answer you, uh, you just articulated. Um, I want to get you to also, uh, you know, talk about a couple other terms here um, before we return to some of the issues you raise in, in your answer. Um, you extend an important concept developed uh, by the critical theorist Jasper Puar, who mm-hmm. describes homo-nationalism. You extend this to settler homo-nationalism and sort of non-native queer modernities. And I'm, I'm hoping you can describe how you arrived at these terms and, and what that means to you, settler homo-nationalism. Sure. Um, it's one of those fancy terms that you, when you're not tenured, you have to say really loudly so people think you're smart but uh, other than that I actually do think it's a really helpful yeah. intellectual formulation mm-hmm. um, and what it's referring to maybe is, is even more um, useful to us as scholars and activists than, uh, than, to, than, than, than the term itself mm-hmm. um, Jasper Puar is, is uh, uh, justifiably famous now for having helped people working at the intersections of gender, sexuality, critical race, post-colonial and transnational studies to understand um, a problem that we face if we look around at ourselves right now. We see very evidently that there are some, uh, I could call them GLBT, but again, as a shorthand for the moment, I will say some queer movements are gaining their freedom by causing other peoples and the sexually and gender diverse people within those peoples to be systematically marginalized and oppressed um, in, a, in a world that's defined by empire, um, in a world that's defined by the so-called war on terror, it becomes very easy to construct uh, the, the so-called West being defended by the centers of old European empire, by the settler states like the U.S. and Canada, by calling themselves 
havens of tolerance for sexual and gender diversity, and then concomitantly constructing Islam um, or Africa or some racialized and orientalized other to its uh, international, global, and capitalist uh, imperial aspirations um, to cast those those others as barbaric and endangering and to interject onto them a story about their failure to embrace and defend sexual and gender diversity. You see that with Palestinians as well, very much so in terms of Israeli, uh, what's been termed as Israeli pinkwashing, which is another place you see that very strongly. Um, Absolutely. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because for me also, it was an immediate link. And my most recent work, which we might talk about later, is actually writing specifically about pink washing and I actually do a I just finished an essay that compares two spirit critiques in the Native North American context to Palestinian queer critique mm. as a way of diagnosing, comparatively diagnosing Canadian and Israeli settler colonialism. So I really think we do need to talk about that. Uh, but the homonationalism refers in the simplest sense to um, to uh, it, it, it sounds literally uh, to uh, gathering uh, queer movements into the service of uh, the imperial nation state. Um, it, and, and right now, I think what we're seeing is we're generally seeing it ascribed to states such as Canada, the United States, Britain, uh, Germany, Israel, that have the power of Europe, of so-called defensive Western civilization, and uh, are using the tools of Orientalism and racism to accomplish their goals. Um, in the context of the United States, though, it, it occurred to me immediately that the, the, the usefulness of this term to explain what's going wrong with queer activism, how it's becoming normalized, you know, it, its whole purpose in, in, this, in the U.S. context in the last 10 years seems to have been um, to get married just like all of the uh, white, rich, straight, fundamentalist Christian uh, people that used to exile, or maybe still do exile them, um, to join the military, uh, go whatever you know, go to Afghanistan, prove that they're that they're patriots. You know, and we, that 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 kind of crap is what the critique of homo nationalism is is useful for targeting. But I couldn't look at what was going on in Iraq and in Afghanistan after very long without thinking, oh my God, I mean, this is not new. You know, this this story of um, uh, of projecting a queer, literally a queer status of being you know, sexually barbaric and violent onto the the target of imperial uh, military uh, of an, uh, 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 the target of of, of, a, of an imperial war making machine. Um, this is the story, if you study the history, as I had to, uh, of of the of the U.S. conquest of Native nations um, from from the formation of of the of the country after the American Revolution, but then, of course, most maybe most notably um, during the conquest of the so-called Louisiana Purchase and and all the way up to the uh, to the era of the Indian Wars in the 1870s and 1880s. There's enormous amount of 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 uh, public discussion. Um, official texts being uh, written and circulated by, uh, by by military leaders, by apologists for conquest um, that describe the civilizing mission of, of expanding U.S. state uh, as bringing uh, sexual morality 
and um, and natural gender nor gender norms to people who were in the story living in uh, primitive state of nature um, and uh, and so effectively inventing a story about a civilized white heterosexuality um, and um, and a binary sex gender system based on very strict patriarchal role distinctions between men and women, bringing this and imposing it as an as as a useful tactic for establishing um, colonial rule um, over native nations. So, um, so settler homonationalism for me is a way of talking about how the the conformity of queer movements in the United States, or just the idea of identifying as a GLBT person in the United States today. Um, is closely aligned with, historically closely aligned with uh, white settler civilizationalism. Mm. And unless you were to really seriously, un, uh, seriously critically rethink how our ideas about sex and gender actually come from a history of conquest, we wouldn't even begin, we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to begin to have a conversation about what the decolonization of sexuality and gender on these lands might be for non-native or for native people. And for me as a non-native person writing about this, I'm actually more concerned about the implications of my argument for native people who are compelled by the, the desire to decolonize everything that has been colonized. And that would include decolonizing conceptualization about the body, about family, about kinship and relatedness, and about peoplehood. Hmm. I'm hoping the, to, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, please. That, that's the direction that you see uh, coming from two-spirit activists. Yeah, but I'm hoping you can yeah. draw out um, that narrative a little bit more because I think that um, whereas a lot of people would recognize uh, that uh, sort of normative colonial sexuality was imposed, um, was held up and valorized as, as you know, uh, more proper in, in the sort of path of civilizations, I would imagine that you know, some, some folks reading this would say, okay, yeah, that's true. But, but queer folks are not, you know, we, we deviate from that. We, um, we're not part of that civilizational, uh, normative, you know, colonial imposition. Um, you know, how, how do queer subjects get born out of that? If, if that original colonial encounter was not about, uh, queer sexuality, it was about heteropatriarchy. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah. It, it yeah. does. It's a very interesting question. Well, I'll try to answer it. I'll, I'll try to answer it by just telling a little bit about how I address this, this conf confluence of issues in the book. Um, uh, so, as, as, I, as I suggested by my, by my prior comment, um, my inclination as a, as a white queer critic of settler colonialism, working in queer studies and in Native studies, is to no longer reproduce a theory of sexuality and gender that holds whiteness as unmarked and central. I will not theorize sexuality or gender except as itself completely, a formation completely interdependent with racialization, colonization, and globalization. And in fact, I think that it's possible to make the argument in, this, in, in certain discrete historical contexts that what we know about sexuality or what we think we know about sexuality and what we think we know about gender have actually emerged out of processes of racialization and out of processes of colonization. They are dependent upon them. They don't just intersect. They're actually effectively secondary. And that's a stronger argument than just saying that they are related in some way and we must mix queer and native studies. I actually would like to call 
peer studies to be dependent upon native studies to be able to understand, for instance, to be able to understand its own object of analysis. And what we see here is we can, we can, we can trace this through, um, through, through historical context, and it, it, it's quite clear that, uh, that when you, if, you don't, if you center scholarship by queer of color and queer diasporic critics in queer studies, people who are centrally theorizing race and diaspora, and if you center indigenous feminist and queer and two-spirit critics who are centering the analysis of gender and sexuality and history of colonization, it becomes very apparent that, just as you just repeated, yes, um, uh, colonization happens through the imposition of a certain form of heteropatriarchy as a useful means to transform societies that colonists are encountering, encountering into a form that's more compatible with their colonial economic and political agenda. And to the extent that you can get people to internalize this new set of social arrangements, who gets to do what job, who gets to live in what place, how is property, how is how is how does one relate to land, like even to convince them that it should become property and should be individualized, et cetera, et cetera. Mark Rifkin in his book, When Did Indians Become Straight, does this work so brilliantly, explains this so brilliantly in the context of U.S. colonial history, that it's actually through, it's not, right, it's, it's not a, this is not a supremacist argument. It's not, it's not saying this is the first thing everyone has to talk about now, but rather in order to explain the history of conquest, one would have to at least include and at times center an analysis of how it was a constitutively heterogeneous patriarchal project. Okay, so you, we made that point. Now, as far as how do queers respond to that, well, I think it's very clear, and I explain this in a number of chapters in my book, if you go back to the history, and if you know your Michel Foucault and his history of sexuality, uh, it, we see that in the white settler states like the U.S., um, it is also, as Foucault described for Europe, the case that modern concepts of homosexuality and transsexuality are actually not even invented until the late 19th century or the early 20th century, specifically in the context of medical science and the use of medical science as a tool of political agents who are trying through, govern through governance to rearrange um, social differences in a way that would be more compatible with a globally expanding modern European capitalist and colonial project. So, um, so whereas there was and certainly remains of uh, an unpredictable and almost undefinable variety of an excessive variety of ways that people lived in their bodies and experienced pleasure and formed relationships, this story that that those things can be narrowed literally narrowed down to a binary between a in, a in terms of sexuality, a contrast between the homosexual other or, 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 or perversion and the heterosexual self or nature, you know, or, or con concomitantly between the transsexual or transgendered perverse other and the normatively gendered uh, self and nature. You know, that, that whole concept, it's, it's historically recent. Foucault already told us that. It's, um, it's dependent upon a certain process of modern cap capitalism and the expansion of modern modes of nation-state governance. That's apparent from the historical literature. Well, we already know that it's also been part of settler colonization. So, so if you look at it, if you look at history, you start to see that that actually the people who in the United States who began to see themselves as the ones who are being marked by this term homosexual in the first instance. Um, uh, well, 
it, it, uh, I don't know if this will make sense immediately to readers, but I think when you when you study the history and I, I explain it to some degree in the book, uh, to a great degree in the book, um, you begin to see that that it, that it was the, the first people who really recognized themselves in this new category, homosexual, uh, were not the people who had been targeted uh, by this imposition of heteropatriarchy as a colonial project for decades. It was white middle class people. Um, uh, how do you, in, in, a, in a sentence, in a, in a nugget, in an interview, how would I sum that up? Um, you know, uh, white settler colonists didn't have to spend a whole lot of time uh, targeting and narrating the lives of uh, Native people who would today be called two-spirited. They might have been held up uh, as emblems of what colonists thought of as wrong with the gendered or sexual culture in a particular Native community, and that did happen, as I also talk about in the book. But when they were held up in this way as an emblem of, of something that had to be changed, it wasn't to change them as an individual or a special kind of type of person, right? It was to change the whole society. They became emblems not of a specific perversion that two-spirit people would now be said to embody, but rather a perversion that was being assigned to Native peoples to, to this thing that the colonists thought of as primitivity as such. So this queering of, of the other, it, I would say that literature tells us that when, it, when it's being assigned to people who are racialized in a white supremacist society, it's assigned at a general level. The whole racial ethnic community gets, shall we say, you know, um, gets covered or affected by it. The only people who were being specified as individuals or as individual homosexuals or transgender or transsexual people are, are we right, are people who could actually legitimately claim to be individuals in a white supremacist settler colonial society. That's white people. That's middle class white people, people who can actually access citizenship. So um so 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 that so I guess that's that's what I'm getting at is that is that actually uh white you know, white middle class and specifically non-transgendered men. So, so white middle class men, people who would otherwise have been the recognized, the publicly recognizable, upstanding citizens of this country. People who 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 probably were raised to think that 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 the whole world was open to them. You know, except for this one little thing, this one little thing, their sexual identity perversion. Those are the people who really glommed on to this idea of being homosexual in the first instance, and they formed the first sexual minority movement in the United States. They organized the movement around their own interests. They defined it on their own terms. And and that's actually a historical origin of some of the homonationalism that we now have to critique 100 or 150 years later. But... Um, but in that sense, what I've done is I've turned the tables. I hope you see in my argument, I'm basically saying that actually the origin of this movement that we generally think of as a movement of marginalized people is actually a movement that was being composed by an incredibly rarefied and vastly overprivileged group of people among all of the people on these lands who were being targeted by heteropatriarchy. Okay, it's not, it's, not that the, it's not that queers are somehow, I'm saying that queers are somehow more responsible for settler colonialism. I'm actually saying that white class privileged male citizens who claimed a gendered or sexual marginalization for themselves are more responsible for reproducing colonialism and racism within these movements than other people. And I'm clearly situating myself as one of those people or rather as an inheritor of the legacy I've just talked about in a very personal way which is probably why I'm so passionate about it. And I want to see us 
those of us who are situated like this really fundamentally confront what that means for our movements. Because what I think it means is that the movements that we've constituted that are out there on the newspaper, getting the newspaper headlines that have set the norm. I mean, everyone, everyone from Dan Savage and his It's Get Better, Get Get Better campaign, you know, to anything you want to list, the human rights campaign in the United States have to confront that they have actually come from a history that has been fundamentally about reinforcing colonial rule, winning their own personal acceptance at the expense of changing a society that is based on violence, not only in the past, but continuing in the present. And they're not interested in destroying the settler state. I can just say that flat out. I want want to return now to two-spirit organizing, because one of the the, the sort of pathways that you suggest um, might be helpful in decolonizing uh, these, you know, queer non-native modernities is to engage in a a really meaningful way uh, with two-spirit organizing. But for folks who um, are not familiar with that term, with the people associated with that term, um, lay it out for us. I mean, what is is two-spirit organizing as you see it? And that particular term, when does that emerge as as an organizing concept for, for folks in this movement? Yeah. Well, I think that it might be helpful um, for those of us who are writing about two-spirit history today to continue, and I do this, I try to do this quite a bit, to emphasize the connections uh, between the activism that would today be called two-spirit organizing um, and a wide variety of other radical uh, pan-tribal native organizing that emerged um, during a renewed era of collective work for decolonization in the late 20th century, certainly in, in a very enlivening way between the starting in the 60s and the 70s. Um, the category through spirit, uh, if you were to read um, works that trace this history, and there are quite a, a few, quite, quite a range of works written by Native scholars and many two-spirit identified Native scholars talking about this right now, you would find that the term is generally uh, placed, its first usage is for its place in the year 1990, um, as a term that emerged out of a gathering of uh, self-identified uh, gay and lesbian Native people that took place in Winnipeg. Um, it was the third meeting of what's now known as the International Two-Spirit Gathering, which is still a meeting in its uh, 24th or 25th year now, I think. And, but, but that was the that happened to be, as I understand it, the gathering at which people who had already been meeting across great geographical distances and national differences for many years got tired of having to continue to use words to describe themselves that clearly came from a colonial language and um, and a sign system that were not that were not resonant resonating with them as, as indigenous categories. And this could be simply the use of gay or lesbian or transgender, which are categories that, while clearly Native and, and other non-Native people of color uh, adopt and appropriate them all the time as, as, um, as empowering categories when defined on their own terms, you know, they don't emerge out of an indigenous language. And they don't really correlate very closely or easily sometimes with the traditionally recognized roles, family roles, spiritual roles, that Native people would be able to play within many nations, certainly not all, but in many nations, uh, traditional cultures, roles that 
might feel to them as quite reflective of their experience as a lesbian, bi, or trans native people today. So, so two spirit was invented as a word, not invented so much, but um, you know, some some scholars, some some activists, including uh, Richard LaFortune, and looks like Richard LaFortune, who is uh, 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 Inuit. Um, I'm sorry, Yupik. Um, I wrote about uh, a two spirit as an uh, English translation of a phrase from Northern Algonquin. Um, not that the Algonquin phrase was itself referring to a specific traditional role, but that it was a, a reference to a way of thinking about a mixing of masculine and feminine spirit or uh, quality within one person. And that, that is one origin story for this category. I, just, I say this because I want my want listeners to know that this way of thinking about indigenous gender and sexual diversity in the contemporary era was, I think, very closely connected to the organizing that had been going on in the 80s and in the 70s and the 60s before that, when Native people, as a result in the U.S. context, uh, because of the relocation program, uh, just the pressures towards uh, urban migration and the formation of urban American Indian and broader indigenous communities, um, economic pressure, political pressure, and then also the, the, the emergence of radical uh, pan-tribal Native organizing, the American Indian movement, um, and its effects, uh, was is very much clearly narrated by the by the historical two-spirit activists that this was what mobilized them to gather together. This is the energy that brought together um, uh, Randy Randy Burns, who's Paiute, and um, and uh, Barbara Cameron, who's Lakota. Uh, to come together in 1975 as the co-leaders and organizers of San Francisco's group Gay American Indians, um, and their organization. Uh, so, so their organization brought a sense like they would go to they went to powwows and tables and talked about you know their lives as gay and lesbian American Indians in the present. They talked about the histories of sexual and gendered acceptance in Native nations. You know, they talked about getting booed and heckled when they would go sometimes, and then other times they'd go and they'd, they'd get serious engagement and acceptance and, and some elders giving them recognition. And this kind of work continued, and, and they got more and more savvy with using media, and they learned, they, they talk about this in their their own personal writing, but they sort of learned a lot of these tactics from AIM. Um, and, and, and so... Uh, and so I'm just saying all this to, to indicate that two-spirit activism is, is, has been very much, it, it, it's constituted as, as, a, as, as, as a movement that is of, of many differently situated people, people who are very closely connected often to their own um, indigenous nation, right, and to, their, and, and to their community. If they have that connection, many people testify to sustaining and growing that connection as part of also identifying as two-spirit and organizing a two-spirit space. So two-spirit space, as I talk about in the book, feels to me to be a space that is simultaneously invested in national resistance and in transnational uh, indigenous resistance to colonialism. And as a result of that, also, I think it's a movement where you see Native people, and again, this may be very similar to other it may be possibly very similar to other uh, pan-tribal or, or transnational Native activisms um, where people are actually sharing knowledges that come from different national contexts and sharing stories about uh, suffering from and surviving and resisting colonialism of, uh, colonialisms of various kinds. Um, and, and as a result of that, of that, 
kind of knowledge, a knowledge that is, uh, I think if we were to interpret it as scholars, we would have to acknowledge that it's simultaneously knowledge that's very closely connected to traditional knowledge, and that means traditional in the sense of since time time immemorial, but also traditional knowledge in the sense of traditions of indigenous resistance to conquest, very invested in these kinds of traditions, the passing on of of knowledge about survival and and resurgence, as Ty Alfred would sometimes call it. Um, and, uh, and, and using that to build a movement that is very savvy and, and articulate and, and fluid and capable and working the, the, the current modern globalized, right, um, uh, and still thoroughly colonial worlds that we are all having to live within and Native people living with living within and in that in that in those locations of still having to resist it as a colonial enterprise. Um, I say all this because I, I think that there's a lot that people could take from the book and I hope that this is one of its implications to the extent that I I had to as a white non native scholar hold my 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 initial desire to critique my own community I had to hold that accountable to the distinctive knowledges that were coming out of two-spirit activism. If I were to have written a book that was entirely focused on basically white middle-class gay men or broader than that, like uh, multiracial but non-native queer politics, that book would not have been responsive to and accountable to native people because once, right, that book would have would have once again it wouldn't I wouldn't have really done this in the same way, but it could have effectively erased native people once again, even though it would think of itself as a critique. That was why my book actually changed, my project actually changed from a more internally focused or self-reflexive project when I was a graduate student for to over the last 10 years, a more self, um, a more, a more directly uh, dialogic um, and, uh, and, and politically responsible text that compares and contrasts knowledge that come from non-native political spaces to knowledge coming out of native political spaces. So I hope that people will read it partly, not just to get the critique that I've talked about quite a bit today, but also what if the distinctive knowledges and um, models for political organizing and yeah, inspirations for pursuing native decolonization that have come out of the specific history of activism that we call two-spirit organizing. Maybe now is a good time to also plug this uh, amazing uh, book you co-collaborated on uh, with uh, with a, a number of other scholars that um, also talks about two spirit organizing the, the queer indigenous studies reader you put together, which is also fairly recent. Is that right? It is. They both were published this year, and thank you for mentioning it. I, I would love to recommend that to readers as well to see um, how uh, variously uh, situated native and non native authors are um, also thinking about this, and and really as part of thinking about these questions, really trying to honor and censor the historical experiences and activisms of Native Two-Spirit people um, when trying to propose and trying to think about what the future of Indigenous decolonization might look like. I want to um, talk about your final chapter for a moment um, on, on Native HIV AIDS organizing, uh, and you put it under this rubric of health sovereignty. Um, Talk a bit about health sovereignty, what that term means, and, and particularly how you see it uh, organizing um, indigenous, particularly indigenous responses to HIV uh, and AIDS. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I was thinking, 
I had to write about native HIV AIDS organizing because it was in the context of responding to the AIDS epidemic in native communities that many native GLBT people uh, first found themselves coming uh, publicly active in their communities, um, speaking out uh, about marginalization and trying to, um, yeah, to mobilize their community in its own defense. Um, this is not to say that Native HIV AIDS activism was uh, emerged out of Native gay and lesbian activism or two-spirit organizing. It didn't emerge out of that in any in any sense or any direct sense. But uh, but I was aware from reading the literature that not as m- I, I thought maybe a little bit more could be made of of what I think is a historical fact, which is that it's very hard to find an example of Native HIV AIDS organizing that did not embrace and foreground leadership by self-identified GLBT and two-spirit Native people, leading all the way back into the early 80s. So this chapter really does uh, center their presence within that, that organizing. Now, it was in the context of that that I just said that just to make sure that people understand that that's kind of the, the reason why I felt like there was an organic linkage between having a chapter on Native HIV organizing in my book that focuses primarily on when it's focusing on Native organizing, on Two-Spirit organizing. Um, I, I framed the chapter around this concept of health sovereignty because it became apparent to me as I was studying the historical literature written by Native HIV AIDS organizations like uh, National Native American AIDS Prevention Center, NAPC, now based in Denver, um, uh, which was very generous in, in sharing a number of historical documents with me for me to hold myself responsible to and think about among other orgs, um, NAPSI and other orgs, um, very clearly identified colonialism as a cause of HIV-AIDS in Native communities. And it's not a simplistic statement in any way, not that I think our listeners would think that it was, but you know, to propose that colonialism is a cause of HIV-AIDS is, well, it's multi- Variant. You know, you can, you can, you can look all the way back as Irene Vernon does in her book, um, "Killing Us uh, Quietly," um, to how uh, histories of of removal and relocation and termination and just general state of war and um, and and social marginalization creates a, a, a host of health disparities, as I think we know uh, in Native communities vis-a-vis certainly white settler communities in the United States and other settler states. And um, and that and so then you would have to talk about that great history, that, that, that deep history in order to understand any contemporary occurrence of uh, of, uh, of of particularly an epidemic disease. Um, but also scholars such as uh, Karina Walters, who's been so important to linking in her scholarship uh, two-spirit organizing and HIV-AIDS organizing with her uh, work in the Honor Project based at University of Washington, um, which is studying responses to HIV-AIDS among uh, contemporary Native people and, and centering two-spirit people. Um, Walters has uh, written about the psychic uh, damage and effect that colonization can result in and the ways in which in which um, in, in which psychic or personal or spiritual effects of a history of colonialism or a personal experience of colonialism can lead to a higher vulnerability to infection or to a higher um, a rate of illness and a death from a disease such as AIDS. So this, this story is so clearly uh, grounding so much of the 
critical literature on HIV that comes from native HIV activists that uh, uh, that anyway, I don't think it would surprise us to find that 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 the scholars also and the activists also uh, then um, argue for a solution to HIV AIDS being um, a reassertion of native sovereignty. <laughs> that 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 if um, that if colonialism is what conditions ill health, then decolonization, and that means political and economic as much as personal or spiritual decolonization, would be necessary steps towards a a real solution to a problem like an epidemic. Mm. Um, so, you know, whereas much of the literature is being written in the context of immediate needs, and, you know, there, there are texts that are being written to gain grants from major foundations or from the uh, federal government of a settler state. Um, nevertheless, if read as historical documents like I was, I think they present a very dynamic theory that, um, and, I, and, I, and it's, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a reach to say this. In fact, I think it's quite clearly stated in the text themselves, and that's part of the energy of the activism itself, um, that this activism is really not just only about meeting immediate needs. It's actually about creating a fundamental transformative solution to the problem of conquest and to the, the, the hope for decolonization. How sovereignty comes up for me as a way of, of hooking all that together, saying that um, that I think the model that we might, I think the model that we're seeing in native HIV is organizing, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's specific to HIV AIDS, it could be in many forms of native health activism, um, is, that, uh, is that native people will be healthy when native peoples can assert traditional and collective sovereignty over the conditions of health. And the conditions of health, as I put it, would have to mean um, foodways, uh, access, to food, to healthy food, um, would have to require uh, a transformation of people's relationship to land, to place, how one lives in a daily way, and and the capacity to to share healthy practices and healthy knowledges in community with one another. Because um, it's also quite clear, Native uh, health advocates and scholars are, you know, quite clear in and in explaining, um, shall we say, indigenous methodologies of health or indigenous medicine as a medicine that cannot be expropriated from its cultural context and turned into, you know, a generic or individualized, you know, drug of some kind. Like these are medicines that are being that that have that that are based within collectively uh, lived traditions. So health sovereignty would also have to mean that indigenous people would be able to live with one another, uh, to to share culture with one another um, in a way that, that affirms and strengthens uh, traditional knowledge about health. And and so I, I, I use this phrase health sovereignty to gesture towards um, the potentially radical transformation of the of our lived experience of uh, of everyday life and life on on these lands that might result if the implications of HIV activists' work were taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we've talked about a, a number of themes in your book today. I want to just reemphasize to our listeners that we've actually only uh, touched on the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, what this book uh, what this book has to offer for, for readers in a, in a number of different contexts, which kind of brings me to a couple of final questions I want to ask you about the different audiences you envision for this work, and particularly about um, straddling um, activism and scholarship um, 
you know, I imagine that you have different audiences for this book and I hope you can talk about uh, the different contexts this book would speak to and, and what you hope, uh, you know, what you hope comes out of this book for those different contexts. Yeah. Uh, well, first I would say that I, uh, I hope that the book is useful and um, very productively useful in Native Studies in the Academy and in Two-Spirit Activism uh, and as well as in uh, other forms of Native uh, community-based activism that connect to the themes um, in, in the text. And uh, I, I say that because I, as, a, as someone who understands himself, I'm positioning myself as a white settler critic and I, I, know, what, I know to whom I'm responsible. If this book, I, I could not, I could not have allowed the book to come to publication if I didn't think that that I had written something that had the potential to be useful. And I wouldn't know that by sort of sitting around my desk and thinking about it. Like I only came to that conclusion because the book ultimately only formed out of uh, long-term uh, dialogic uh, conversational relationship with two-spirit activists and the activist community. Uh, who interviewed me, pieces of what I had written, and gave me critiques and indicated to me what I, what directions I would be most appropriate for me to to, to pursue, um, and in the context of sharing the work and and being critiqued and being challenged and 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 encouraged um, and supported in uh, the uh, the really wonderful. Uh, space of, of intellectual dialogue being formed by the Native American Indigenous Studies Association and, and Native Studies more generally. Uh, NASA having, uh, I guess the first meetings that led to NASA having started in 2007. It's really these last five or six years of my life being in that, uh, you know, I, I, I've been engaging work in Native Studies for so long, but it was in when people really started gathering together so intentionally and, and frequently that, um, that I have a sense of the book having a usefulness in this space. Um, what would the use be? I hope that, um, first of all, it uh, demystifies queer theory for Native studies. I think there are a lot of people who are trying to do that. I've mentioned Mark Rifkin. A lot of people have written some really, uh, some folks in queer indigenous studies, um, Andrea Smith, uh, Chris Finley. Lots of people have written really interesting texts that uh, try to indicate what would be the usefulness of even studying this body of knowledge that's called queer theory in the context of Native studies. Um, I spent a while, I hope not too long, <laughs> being too long-winded about it, but I tried to spend a little while in this conversation thinking about um, how, how, how we might even understand how, how racism and conquest function better if we see how they work by queering nations, you know, the target of conquest isn't just conquered uh, on a racial basis or a civilizational basis, but also on a gendered or sexual basis, um, not in any kind of literal sense, but more in stories that are projected upon them in order to justify and, and mobilize um, a new kind of colonial or imperial order. I think queer, queer theory, I don't mean queer theory in a narrow sense, but just more generally, more generally speaking, queer studies or taking the analysis of sexualization and gender seriously could be incredibly useful. And, and you know, this is so not a new idea. I mean, this is exactly, I, I cite, and I would, I want to clearly state to the listeners, I even got the idea that this might be possible by first 
being held accountable to and then holding myself in conversation with Native feminist scholarship because it's Native feminist scholars who have been clearly arguing that, that Native peoples will, be, uh, will achieve freedom when, when, the, when the colonial effects of patriarchy in Native peoples' lives are, are fundamentally transformed. And um, it's a very powerful argument. It's, it's a very long citation trail there. Um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and so, again, it's not a new idea, and it's not a new idea to Native studies. But I do hope that, uh, that, that the book encourages the continuation of that conversation and, and lets us see where we're engaging with certain ideas in queer studies could actually be very useful, right, to Native critics across the board, regardless of whether the project they're working on seems to be about sex, you know, on the surface, or seems to have to center women or GLBT people, and rather the, the analytical purchase is available for many uses. Um, I also hope that the book, as I've mentioned, is directly useful to two-spirit activists. I wouldn't have, as I mentioned, even felt comfortable continuing with the writing of it if I didn't think that the direction I was moving in was to have this as one of its effects. Um, it's one thing to recognize that non-Native queer movements have appropriated Native culture to themselves and reproduced settler colonialism. That argument is actually not new. And I, I, as the person who wrote a book that, that's called Queer Settler Colonialism in its subtitle, I would like to say that I did not come up with this idea. <laughs> I am completely responsible for every single thing I said in the book. But the argument is not mine. You know, I, I, I already knew this, but it, then doing that work in the archive and talking to the, two, the elder two-spirit activists and reading these personal texts and activist texts and newsletters, things that had circulated widely in their moment but are now pretty much only in a box in their house or in one of the archives that I went to on mimeograph or something or an old faded newspaper copy. And you see a, a 40, almost 50-year trajectory of activist critical theory, knowledge production, very clearly announcing that queer movements in a settler state are settler colonial until they understand that they are constituted by that power relationship and until they take a stand uh, in the first instance to, uh, to oppose the continuation of settler colonialism and hold themselves responsible Native people. That was what Native GLBT and Two-Spirit activists were always arguing. It wasn't the first thing they were arguing because as far as I understand it, their project was about their own lives, their survival, their resurgence. But wrapped up inside that work of talking about what it means to be Native, there was clearly this critical analysis. I was always, and other non-Native queer people, were always responsible to that argument. And the degree to which we didn't encounter it in the past is probably the degree to which we were insulated and allowing ourselves to be insulated by settler colonial species of Native disappearance and our privilege as people who participate in and benefit from a settler society that has not been decolonized yet. You know, our ignorance, even if it's clearly produced by a system we didn't invent, our, or the continuation of our ignorance is our responsibility. We're responsible for that because we could have chosen not to remain ignorant, especially when Native activists were so clearly arguing a different way of doing work. So, um, so I hope that uh, you know, even though my, my intention was, to, and I do this, to spend most of my time, like 75% of my time, 
talking about non-natives in this book, the point of the book was to contrast that with native knowledge production and, and as a result, hold, uh, hold the non-native community responsible to the conversations that it was already in or should have already been in. And uh, if that is useful, if that is useful to the past and present and future directions of two-spirit activism, which I, I, I like to think that it could be, then I would be very, very happy about that. Well, I've been talking to uh, Dr. Scott Morgensen. He's author of Spaces Between Us, Queer Settler Colonialism and Indigenous Decolonization, just released from the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, Dr. Morgensen, before we wrap up, uh, I always like to ask our guests, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the interview, but uh, what are you working on next or what are you thinking about next? Where do you go from here? Yeah, real quick. Um, uh, I'm currently uh, under application for and hoping to be able to begin a long-term historical and ethnographic study of racism and settler colonialism in Canadian GLBT and queer politics. And uh, the, the interesting quality in, in that project would be that it would be able to mark that, that in, in the Canadian context, um, racism, both racism and settler colonialism have been put at the front of the queer political agenda over the last few years and I would say in the case of two-spirit people, decades, uh, by two-spirit people, by indigenous activists first, and now most recently and secondly, by Palestinian and allied queer activists. Um, Something about the Canadian context that's different from the U.S. context um, is that the discussion about race and racism, and I'm saying this as as someone raised in the United States and who's still relatively new to Canada and getting used to the differences, is that historically the conversation about racism is raised in Canada around Aboriginality, around indigeneity. Um, and, uh, and, And not only, right, but because also being raised around um, uh, 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 African, Afro-Canadians and, and Asian-Canadians, um, uh, people of the African diaspora living in Canada um, and of Asian diasporas living in Canada, but who are often being constructed uh, in contemporary Canadian discourse as quote-unquote new. And um, Ronaldo Walcott's work and other work in Black Canadian studies clearly pops the bubble on that story. That, that somehow all other racialized folks in Canada are new to the country, but in any case, um, you know, in the Canadian context, racism and racism has been some, has been a topic that often raises Native people into discussion. Whereas in the U.S. context, if racism was the only thing on the table for discussion, I would bet you money that Native people are not going to be the first people to get talked about. Um, and and you'd have to talk about settler colonialism to get their experiences onto the table. So uh, what I've, what's also been interesting is that Canada has been recently um, uh, struggling around its relationship to the Israel-Palestine conflict, a combination of being under conservative government that has turned Canada from being kind of a, a you know a, a milk toast in relationship to that conflict to being one of Israel's most vociferous defenders under Stephen Harper. And um, and uh, and the organization, the, the formation of a Palestinian solidarity group in Toronto a few years ago, Queers Against Israeli Apartheid, um, has led to uh, a storm of of struggle in Canadian queer communities over their relationship to the question of whether Israel is practicing forms of racism and or settler colonialism towards Palestinians. I would argue that it is doing both, and I'm interested in studying um, how these two 
now these two contexts of conflict and discussion, two-spirit activism and Palestinian solidarity activism connect. It's both a historical question, but if you're, you know, if people are interested, I actually think I would like to encourage us to think more carefully about studying settler colonialism comparatively. Um, and that comparison could be across the Americas, it could be in South Africa, it could be across Oceania, it could be in the history of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, or of Algeria, and it could be looking at what's going on in Palestine. Um, the journal Settler Colonial Studies is encouraging some of this scholarship. Uh, more importantly, a recent dele academic delegation of uh, scholars who have joined with the academic uh, boycott of Israel in solidarity with the BDS movement just returned from Israel, and that included um, Professor of American Studies and Anthropology J. K. Halani Kalanui, who is a co-founder of NASA, uh, and a Kanaka Maoli scholar, author of Hawaiian Blood, a uh, wonderful book I highly recommend. Um, she also uh, went on this tour and has been writing a lot about her experiences, and and I'm just marking this as an indication that I think that that thinking about about um, how Native Studies scholars will engage with the question of Palestine and 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 engage with thinking about um, settler colonialisms comparatively could be a very interesting direction, and I hope that my future work will, will be uh, supportive of that. I, uh, sounds like very important work, and I hope um, I hope when it, it comes to fruition, uh, we can. Uh, have you back on the program to discuss it. That would be brilliant. Thanks, That'd Andrew. Well, thank You'll you. help me write that book, too, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Dr. Scott Morganson, author of Spaces Between Us, Queer Settler Colonialism and Indigenous Decolonization. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Scott Lorian Morganson, author of Spaces Between Us, Queer Settler Colonialism and Indigenous Decolonization from the University of Minnesota Press. We're on the web at newbooksandnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like our Facebook page, you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.